0: If you give way to, without acknowledging it to be an unrighteous act, and you persist in practicing and living in a manner of life, a pattern of conduct, what we would call a lifestyle that is openly contradictory to the standards of God's Word, you're living in a way that would contradict, were you to profess to be a Christian, your real identity in Christ.
1: Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 111, and I'm Jared Luchabor. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Cornelis Venema continues his review of some New Testament texts on the issue of homosexuality and then transitions to assess the revisionist interpretation of these texts. That is, how do those who affirm homosexual unions interpret these portions of Scripture, and how should we respond to them?
0: In our last session, I made a valiant effort to cover the most significant testimony in Scripture regarding God's design for human sexuality and its expression within the ordinance and institution of marriage, and in the context of the fall into sin, and testimonies in the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding how sin has broken human relationships and certainly broken the relationship according to God's design of marriage, and led to a variety of forms of idolatry and sexual immorality practice that does not accord with God's will. And I had done a fairly adequate job, at least summarizing the Old Testament testimony, but I only was able to quote and read three rather important passages in the New Testament. And I I want to return to two of those. The first of them is found in Romans chapter 1, Uh, beginning at verse 26. Now, it's important to remember the context in Romans 1. In the introduction to his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul has described how the wrath of God in the context of human sin and rebellion is being poured out from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he goes on to say that though all human beings through the works of God's hands, through the things that he's made, the things that are seen, know God, know him to be the living God. They see something of his uh, divinity and his everlasting glory through the works of his hand, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they worship the creature rather than the creator, and they exchange the worship and service of the true and living God for the worship. And service of idols of their own making. Now, it's in that context that the apostle three times says that God, in his response to human sinfulness and rebellion, their suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, how God gives such rebellious sinners over under his just judgment to even greater sinfulness. That's the context for the language we find in verse 26, where Paul says, "...for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error what is especially sobering about the language of these verses is that the giving over to unnatural passions whether between men and men or women and women is a display or a disclosure of God's own justice in allowing permitting giving over to even more serious forms of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and in, in ungodliness. Uh, and the language, I think, particularly important in this connection is when Paul speaks of nature, acting against nature, fuses is the term he uses, or acting unnaturally, Again, to repeat myself, when we take up revisionist interpretations, we'll come back to this language because they'll say that uh, for a homosexual person or a person who is attracted to members of the same sex, it isn't unnatural for them to practice homosexual relations with other men. My point here is going to be that within the framework of what Paul is saying here in chapter 1, and what he even says in chapter 2 about the works of the law impressed or written upon the human conscience, whereby they accuse or excuse themselves, that nature here is a term used by Paul to refer to that order of things that belongs to God's intention at creation. They're unnatural in the sense of they go against the way God designed and intended in distinguishing men from men, uh, from women and women from men, man as male and female. They're unnatural because they do not accord with the norm. They're out of accord. They're disordered. If I may actually use a term phrase that's often employed in the Roman Catholic tradition, In terms of the morality of homosexuality, it's an objectively disordered, not only attraction for members of the same sex, but particularly what's in focus in these verses is the acting out or the fulfillment of those unnatural desires in a form of sexual practice, homosexual practice, that is not natural. That is not as God intended, not the way, as an author has put it in terms of the doctrine of sin generally, not the way the things ought to be. Now, the second passage that I do want to pause over a little bit is the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. What's particularly striking about this passage is the way in which he identifies believers, members of the Body of the church in Corinth as those who will inherit the kingdom by God's grace toward them in Christ. Uh, and he contrasts them and their former state, their former sinfulness before God, by his grace, took hold of them in Christ. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's a broad categorical statement that in order to inherit the kingdom, To be properly a member of Christ and of his body, the redeemed, uh, you may not continue to practice or live in unrighteousness, that is, in open rebellion, in acts contrary to God's holy law. Do not be deceived, therefore, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's very important to recognize that when Paul identifies these various forms of unrighteousness and patterns of conduct, not simply homosexual practice, but adultery, a violation of one's wedding and, and marriage vows, even excessive use of alcohol, drunkards, greedy, desiring, coveting, seeking things. None of these are sins, however unrighteous, however contrary to God's will, that by themselves put you outside of the kingdom in the the language is language that speaks of persons who are continuing to practice, carrying on in a pattern of conduct from which they have not repented, nor have they sought forgiveness, nor have they enjoyed the benefits of christ's saving work the The, the point i'm making is he's describing a pattern of life and conduct that is unbelieving and impenitent that really is a description of what is true of all fallen sinners, apart from God's grace. Nor is he suggesting, as you go on in this passage, that when a Christian who is in Christ does inherit the kingdom by God's grace, of whom it can be said, such were you before but you are now washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul is not a perfectionist in this passage. That's the point I'm coming to. He's not saying that Christians never sin. Or he's not saying that at no point in the Christian life do we need pray to God to forgive us for a sin that we've committed. He's not saying that Christians will never commit sins, even sexual sins and thereby become ineligible to inherit the kingdom of God. The key is what he says about them now that they are in Christ. They enjoy all of the graces that come to those who turn to Christ in faith. They enjoy not only justification, that is, free acceptance with God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone, We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by the extent to which we have been sanctified. Uh, The catechism that I love, the Heidelberg Catechism, says even of the righteous, those who are members of Christ, who have been, as Paul describes them here, washed, justified, sanctified, no one of them makes more than a small beginning of perfect obedience. But what the passage is wanting to say to us Is that if you give way to, without acknowledging it to be an unrighteous act, and you persist in practicing and living in a manner of life, a pattern of conduct, what we would call a lifestyle, that is openly contradictory to the standards of God's Word, you're living in a way that would contradict were you to profess to be a Christian your real identity in Christ as a a person who has turned from his sin, has been brought back through faith into union with Christ and through Christ fellowship with God, and enjoy the benefits of Christ's saving work, the grace of justification, the working and renewal of the Holy Spirit as you are being sanctified. Now, you may continue to battle with your three sworn enemies, your sinful flesh, the world, and your archenemy, Satan himself. But that's contrary to the bent and the direction of your life as it is found now in Christ. And for our purpose, it's a particularly significant passage, even in a topic we'll consider at greater length in another episode, namely, what is the church's calling in terms of its testimony to the gospel and its testimony to those who might be tempted to give way to same-sex attraction or perhaps even approve a homosexual lifestyle of a particular sort this is a passage that says those who have been brought out of their sin into fellowship with God through Christ there life, their identity, their conduct will be marked by a realization that to act contrary to God's holy will is sinful, it has consequences, it's their heart's desire that they should live in a way that accords with their new identity in Christ. And that identity does not give room for the practice of same sex relationships between men and men, women and women, that is out of accord, that are out of accord with God's holy will. Now, I've been spending a lot of time offering a kind of general overview of the Scripture's testimony as it relates to human sexuality. I want to spend the remainder of our time in this session dealing with, and I've already alluded to some of these arguments, to the way in which What are sometimes called revisionist authors today are trying to escape, I put that somewhat uh, pejoratively, uh, trying to escape what appears to be the compelling and clear testimony of Scripture on this topic. And these arguments that they'll often offer in their handling of these biblical texts fall into, broadly speaking, three categories. The first category are arguments that want to suggest that what might appear clear from the Scripture's testimony reflects a very particular circumstance in the culture and context to which these texts were first addressed. And they don't really provide a general or a universal norm that can be applied now in our new cultural context and situation. Uh, The argument usually goes in one of two ways. It will be suggested that the biblical authors are only addressing questions that were posed and relevant in the circumstances of the time in which these texts were written. For example, I already alluded to these two arguments in connection with the story regarding the sin of Sodom in Genesis 19, and there the argument would be that if you know the context and the circumstances and conventions in that ancient world of Sodom and in the period of Lot and Abraham— You would know that the conventions violated there were not so much sexual conventions, but conventions relating to showing hospitality to strangers. Similarly, you'll find authors arguing with respect to the holiness code prohibitions in Leviticus, two of which I mentioned. They'll say, and I suggested this in my exposition of those two passages, that the context there or the circumstance was a particular form of cult prostitution, cultic homosexual practice that represented a danger on the part of Israel to conform her practice uh, in respect to worship and the service of God in the temple to practices that were approved and permitted in the surround among the surrounding peoples. And the point of this is to say, They have a very narrow application. The issues that we face today and the circumstances we need to address, the church needs to address, don't have to do narrowly with uh, issues pertaining to showing hospitality to strangers or forms of religious practice that involve cult prostitution and cultic homosexual practice. Now, the second direction in which this kind of an argument goes is to say that our questions— are not the biblical authors' questions. Or a different way of putting it is to say the biblical authors, the Apostle Paul himself, for for example, could not have imagined what we see today. Paul, just as a case in point, may have been, when he speaks of men sleeping with men, uh, women with women, he may have been alluding to forms of sexual practice, homosexual, in the Greco-Roman world, which were uh, serial engagements with multiple partners. Nothing of the sort that we sometimes confront today, where you have people who are advocating a kind of marriage between a man and a man wear monogamy, fidelity, exclusive commitment for a lifetime in a tender-hearted and uh, beautiful expression of human friendship between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Uh, that also includes a relationship where there is sexual intimacy between members of the same sex. Uh, they simply didn't know Uh, The biblical authors could not have anticipated something like that, and therefore they could not have addressed the kind of questions we're facing where people will present themselves as in a quote-unquote homosexual marriage relationship, a true marriage in the sense of a monogamous covenanted bond between two persons that exclude any third party, Now, I could give some further examples, but broadly speaking, this this kind of an argument basically says that if you understand in their context and in the particular world to which the biblical authors were first addressing themselves, they were addressing uh, forms of practice that we would still condemn today. Uh, I'm talking now in terms of revisionists who want to maintain their a profession to be representing the Christian gospel and message and the way forward for the church. I'm not talking about those who oppose the church and the gospel and who uh, reject altogether the Christian faith. These are persons within the framework of the professing church who want to make a case for the church blessing and approving and accepting certain forms of same-sex sexual intimacy, but forms that are nowhere known, nor therefore able to be condemned in the scriptural text that we've considered. Now, the second category or approach by way of a revisionist argument, it's in some ways a sub-point to the first, and I alluded to it earlier. You'll often hear people say, well, of course, we should act according to our nature, as God created us. But it so happens, and this is not anticipated, broadly speaking, in the Scriptures, that some persons are born with a disposition or attraction toward members of their own sex for a variety of reasons or find themselves in that kind of place, not by choice, not by simply arbitrarily seeking to be attracted to members of the same sex. But that's just who they are. That's their identity. They find themselves uh, inevitably, and for that, that, that is their created nature. So that the argument from what is natural actually can be turned on its head. So when Paul says they engaged in practices in Romans 1, that were unnatural. He's talking about men who are heterosexual engaging in homosexual practice so that the practice is against their nature. We're dealing, the revisionists will often maintain, with a new circumstance where people are in a circumstance situation where what is for them natural is being by the church, inappropriately rejected. Uh, And sometimes the argument is often made in a rather emotional fashion. Uh, You're really diminishing and demeaning my identity. This even goes to a question that we'll deal with in another session in terms of the church's witness uh, in respect to this question, and that has to do with, should I even identify myself in the language I employ Uh, I'm a gay Christian, or I'm a homosexual Christian. That's who I am. That's my natural disposition or condition. That's my sexual orientation. That's how I find myself. And you're telling me that uh, it's inappropriate and improper for me. It's actually sinful. It puts me in a place where I'm under God's judgment as sinning against his holy will if I should act out what accords with my nature. And now here I come back to my main point at the beginning of our first or our last session, and that is, you can't redefine natural in the context of a world created order that is broken through sin and God's curse. That is to say, when Paul in Romans 8 says the whole creation at present groans as a woman in travail under God's judgment because of human sin, waiting for the full redemption of God's people, uh, you have to recognize that though it may truly be in some respects not a a desire that I've chosen for myself, it still comes under the verdict of being disordered, contrary to the original pattern and will of God for human life. Uh, The last argument Probably the most persuasive or compelling in the sense of the one that carries the most, has the most traction, is that, and it too is in its own way, a further modification of the first two approaches of revisionist interpretation. And it's the argument that it's the quality of the relationship that obtains between one person and another, not their sexual orientation or practice as such. The key to marriage, the core norm is monogamy. One man, one woman, or one man and one man, or one woman and one woman. Provided it is a loving, tender-hearted, mutual commitment of lifelong and exclusive fidelity to one's mate, sexual partner, it answers to what lies at the core of the biblical norm for marriage. And so you get a big debate about should a homosexual relationship be called a true marriage, whether that be in the civil context, should the state permit homosexual marriage, call it marriage, or in the context of the church, should the church bless same-sex relationships? And I think the response to this particular argument is twofold. Firstly, it's it's not likely— that the problem of homosexual practice broadly speaking in our culture is um, focused largely on monogamous relationships uh, that in itself is a is a second question, but we do know that generally speaking in contemporary society and culture uh promiscuity and multiple relationships, serial relationships, casual encounters are the more ordinary expression. But to zero in on the second and more significant thing for the church, uh, what about the argument that all that matters is loving monogamy between two persons committed the one to the other, whether of the same sex or male and female? The law of God is is not simply, if I may use the language of a situational ethic— Uh, In some ways, what's being advocated at this point is a kind of situational ethic. Love can take whatever form it chooses to take in differing situations and circumstances, never mind the particular specific encouragements, imperatives, and prohibitions that are spelled out in God's holy law. It's very important to remember at this point, that, for example, the summary of God's law, the Ten Commandments, those Ten Commandments are broken into two tables. The first table, the first four commandments, outline particularly and specifically what it means to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table, Commandments 5 through 10, give a clear, particular, specific, set of prohibitions with implicit encouragements and exhortations to a pattern of life that accords with God's will. So you can't appeal to the imperative of love as though it were contentless, normless. It takes on flesh and blood. It takes on bones and sinew and all that makes a body a body in the language of the particular commandments themselves. And the relevant commandment, of course, is the commandment about committing adultery, which goes to the core question of where sexual intimacy comes properly to expression in the marriage relationship, which is exclusive, and which by implication sets forth a norm for the Christian community— that we ought not to engage in sexual intimacy with partners outside of the bonds of marriage, the call of the gospel and of the scriptures for those who are unmarried or single, whether their orientation sexually is, according to the norm, heterosexual or disordered homosexual, they're called to a life of chastity, of not giving way to forms of Sexual immorality. Uh, it's interesting, I'll just conclude with this, that though there are many revisionist authors who within the church are using these various strategies, again, a somewhat pejorative term on my part, I acknowledge, to blunt the force, the uh, applicability, and the normativeness of the scripture's testimony, uh, it In the report of the CRC on human sexuality, there's a very striking section where they quote several revisionist authors who actually rather candidly acknowledge that the testimony of Scripture, as I've represented it as best I can, is rather compelling. We need simply to acknowledge that for all our efforts at revising and blunting the force of the Scripture's testimony— The real engine that's driving our exegesis of these texts is how do we find a a place in our cultural environment and context where we're sort of excluded from the table and regarded as by virtue of holding to the scriptures teaching on this topic, being allegedly homophobic or lacking empathy or love, as love should express itself in accepting, tolerating, possibly even approving uh, forms of human conduct that are contrary to God's will. Well, with that, I conclude my comments on the scripture and revisionist interpretation, and we'll go our in our next session uh, more directly to how Does the church bear witness and minister to and engage this challenge that cannot be avoided of the modern sexual revolution and claims being made both within and without the church regarding why we should reconsider, perhaps abandon certain features of the historic testimony of the church on the mass.
1: Join us next week as Dr. Venema wraps up our series on homosexuality by providing what is most needed in these trying times for the church and this issue, pastoral guidance. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchabor. Till next time.